0: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix sports series, NASCAR Full Speed.
1: I don't care about making friends at the racetrack. I don't want to be friends with any of them. I want to win and I'll do it at all
0: costs. Today, we're talking to producer Aaron Cohen and NASCAR senior vice president, Tim Clark. After a year of high stakes racing, it all comes down to the final 10 races of the NASCAR Cup Series playoffs. The sports best drivers face elimination as they make their way to the final race and most storied championship in motorsports. But who are these competitors behind the wheel? Are they the same person at home as they are on the track? And do they have the right stuff to take the checkered flag? NASCAR Full Speed brings fans behind the scenes both on and off the track while exploring the physical, mental, and emotional challenges of competing for a championship at the world's highest level of stock car racing. I can win a championship. I can fulfill a dream. I can
2: become historic. Or I can screw it all up.
0: And I'm joined now by producer Aaron Cohen and NASCAR Senior Vice President Tim Clark. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, guys.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: So, Aaron, we're entering a golden age of sports docs, and I think Netflix is leading the way on those. If the first thing you had to do before shooting was create like a mood board for NASCAR full speed, what other titles would have been tacked up on the wall for your inspiration for this series?
1: Yeah, that's a fun question. I mean, I think you have to start with Drive to Survive, which is obviously a racing show that, you know, follows a somewhat similar plot line in terms of of, of following a sport, and like you said, Netflix has been on the cutting edge of this stuff and has become a thing where if you're sitting in a bar or a restaurant and one of these shows, Drive to Survive, Full Swing, Breakpoint, these, you know, follow shows come up and hopefully now full speed, like people have seen them. You know, they're 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 in there. It's an expected thing that sports fans have seen. And so I think all of those shows, a little bit of those, that combination of shows would have been on our mood board. And then if you think of other shows that have been out there, you know, Hard Knocks, 24-7, going back years on HBO, and plenty of other things that NFL Films has been doing for years and years and years. So all that stuff. But I think Netflix and the shows they've been doing that we tried to become a part of this kind of this this new generation of these follow doc, all access shows. Um, we were looking to put our own spin on it. And NASCAR felt like a really, you know, terrific template for it.
0: So, Tim, we know there's a healthy respect for and a little bit of competition with Formula One racing, and you've seen Netflix's drive to survive. So was the desire here to show what makes NASCAR very distinctly different from F1?
2: I I think to a certain extent. I mean, look, I I think we're obviously big fans of F1 as a sport. We're we're big fans of of motorsports in general. And you know, I think the to Aaron's point, it was so well done that show, and and I think it was a bit of a resurgence for the sports follow doc, right? I mean, that that's maybe not a new medium, but I think certainly one that that got a lot of attention and and drove a lot of eyeballs. So I think we've long been uh, big fans of storytelling, and and certainly I think when Drive to Survive started to push the F one brand forward, it certainly got our attention, but. I think less uh, of a maybe a, a competition, more of, you know, the idea of, of putting more eyeballs on motorsports, certainly in the U.S., is is a big win for all of us. So I think telling our version of that story, so to speak, or, or maybe drawing not only the parallels, but the things that are, are certainly unique to NASCAR, definitely part of the, the goal. And, and obviously going back to our early conversations with Aaron and team, part of, of what we wanted to accomplish telling this story.
0: Tim, was that the pitch? I mean, how did you get so many drivers to agree to participate in this? Because, you know, they're huge names in NASCAR. It's not like they need to be on Netflix in order to get people to love them, right?
2: Yeah. I, I tell you, a little bit of it was turning the question around. I think for the past few years, we've certainly gotten a healthy dose of, hey, you know, F1 has their deal. When are, when are we doing our Netflix show? So, you know, over the course of uh, much of the summer last year, it was, well, here we are. There's uh, there's no time like the present. So. I would say we were pleasantly surprised by the response from our drivers. and You know, I think hearing that, that you have best-in-class storytellers, a huge platform like Netflix, uh, we, we found a lot of interested parties.
0: So, Aaron, NASCAR continues to grow in popularity outside its historically regional centers. And now Netflix is putting the sport in front of people across the U.S., around the world that might never have seen a race in person or could name a driver. How do you find that sweet spot between telling a story for hardcore fans that they will enjoy and not feel as dumbed down and for telling a story to me, somebody who is, you know, pretty new to the sport, kind of an outsider?
1: My theory has always been, and I've said this before, that if you're a big fan of anything and you know everything, I'll, I'll pick who's probably the most popular person in America right now in culture. We'll say Taylor Swift. Right. Let's say, you know, everything about Taylor Swift, but then a really interesting you know, writer in a general interest magazine or a national newspaper writes a big profile of Taylor Swift. The first people to read that and gobble it all up are probably going to be Taylor Swift fans. Because if you can come in with an outside perspective and sort of start from the beginning and tell a story that's going to appeal to a mass audience, I think if you do a good job of that, you're also going to really hit a sweet spot with you know, your avid fans. And so that's what we did. Um, we had plenty of people on our staff who, and in partnership with NASCAR Studios and Tim's team, Uh, who really knew the sport. So we wanted to make sure we didn't make any real mistakes in terms of seeming like uh, amateurs. But at the same time, I think take that global perspective and say, hey, if we just tell a great story that we find really interesting, we think the NASCAR avid fans will also be really into that style of storytelling.
0: So, Tim, I have watched all of these docs and I'm a huge golf fan. And for in full swing, for instance, we see the athletes spending a lot of the week, you know, getting to where the next tournament is going to be or playing golf, you know, when they're not in a golf tournament. And you can't like drive a NASCAR around when you're not in a NASCAR race. And it seems like a lot of these drivers actually enjoy like quiet family lives during the rest of the week when they're not racing. They have meetings, you know, they have a little bit of training, but they really seem to live regular quiet lives. I mean, is that accurate? Because that's what I saw in the series.
2: I think it is accurate. And it's it it led to some really interesting conversations with with a lot of those guys, because I think they have a tendency to think, well, this is really boring. You're saying you want to follow me Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but I don't do anything interesting or exciting those days. And I think our response to them was, we know that, but what you do on Saturdays and Sundays is exceptional and it's extraordinary and it's really interesting. But we all see that we we can tune in or, or buy a ticket I think it, it's few and far between that you get to see what some of these drivers are doing when they don't have a helmet on or when they're not behind the wheel. Or in the case of Denny Hamlin taking his daughters to school, maybe letting one of them behind the wheel. All right, Molly, you're up.
1: No, she's not driving. Yes. I always let her drive. Oh, get ready to turn.
2: You're good. I'm not helping. No hand. No hand. There's a lot to be said for that. I think a little bit of it was just getting some of them to understand that it may not feel interesting to you because you 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 do it every day, but but I think to a viewer and certainly a you know someone that that hasn't traditionally followed the sport, it's really interesting to see what's happening in their day-to-day lives
0: especially when they have these like over-the-top personas, which is part of the sport. I mean, the first driver we get to meet up close is Denny Hamlin, and he is one of the most successful drivers in NASCAR. He's got 50 wins at the time of the filming. It's made him incredibly wealthy, but he hasn't won the NASCAR Cup. He says over and over again, that's not the thing that defines him as a driver. Tim, do you think he believes that?
2: I do, uh, but I also think it drives him at the same time. And listen, I, I think back to what we talked about earlier—the the dynamic of getting these drivers to participate. I think Denny is a good example. I think Denny, whether he would admit it or not, part of the the decision to to be part of the show was if this is going to be the first time I win the championship and get that monkey off my back. It certainly would be really sweet to do it with Netflix cameras following the whole thing and and documenting that trip to you know his first championship. So I, I think that's part of it. They've got a lot of goals and, and ambitions as part of their driving career, but putting it on an even bigger stage has is, is got to be something that, that is rattling around in, in Denny and others' brains.
0: You know, it really struck me because one of the first things we hear in the series, Aaron, is that NASCAR drivers are like insane. Right. And then we see Denny Hamlin waking up his daughter for school, burning the pancakes, melting the spatula. I mean, first of all, is he just really that bad at making pancakes or was he just like making pancakes for your crew to like show like I'm a regular guy? What was your sense of that? (laughs) Yeah.
1: The the sense I got was, uh, look, I think Tim put it best, like when Denny said he was all in. We knew enough, you know, from the reaction we got from Tim and his team, like this was a big deal. And Denny was like true to his word, as you saw all the way through until uh, he was ultimately eliminated in Martinsville. And so he was going to do whatever he was going to do, you know, to let us in and have some fun and, and put himself, I guess, and you could say in that sense, in some vulnerable situations.
0: Yeah, you know, he says he has this persona as a cocky driver, but that's not who he is. Joey Logano and Ross Chastain say similar things, like to some, I'm a villain and I'm not at the track to make friends. I mean, first of all, no one says that they're at the track to make friends in this entire series. That's one thing everyone has in common. But you might have favorite individual golfers or tennis players, but... It does seem pretty unique to NASCAR that fans seem to elevate who the baby faces and the heels are. Like, it feels a little bit like a professional wrestling dynamic, the relationships the fans have with these drivers. Is that accurate, Aaron?
1: I mean, I'd love to hear Tim's thoughts on this, but that was, like, one of the most interesting things. You you know, you, you nailed it on the head in terms of, like, you go to these races, and I went to a handful, in team sports, typically teams match up one against the other, right? So you're only going to see the Chiefs or the 49ers, you know, in terms of what people are wearing. But in this case, you go and there are 20 different t-shirts and hats and, and all that kind of thing. And you try to figure out who are like these communities of people who follow certain drivers and, you know, and who are these good guys and who are the bad guys and, what kinds of people. And it all seems to be kind of a mishmash. But look, these guys are all out there and they're all kind of doing the same thing in terms of, you know, risking their lives. And you got to have a certain edge to your personality, I think, to put yourself on the line to do that and, to, you know, be the kind of person who drives race cars for a living.
0: Tim, can you talk about that? Because there seems to be some sort of like psychosocial dynamics to like who follows who. There's like the everyman. There's like the cocky bad guy. I mean, I- I'd love to hear your take on this, like the personas of the drivers and the way that fans fans tend to really follow individual guys.
2: No, I, th- I think you're spot on. And I think part of it, you know, is is generational. We've got a few drivers that their dads or their grandfathers race. And I think you've got those fan bases that have kind of followed them over the, the course of really when they were just kids, well before they had a career in driving professionally. But now I think you're starting to see more and more of those allegiances come from the on-track persona, so to speak. So, I think for a guy like Denny, it's been really interesting to see the last couple of years. It's almost like he evolved into a heel. I remember being at the racetrack. Wait, are they booing Denny? And I think that puts a driver at a really interesting crossroads, right? Like, do you lean into being the heel? Do you try to steer away from it? And to Denny's credit, he head on full speed, so to speak, into being the heel. He has fully embraced that role. And you know, I think when you win as much as he does, it, it probably makes it a little bit easier to be the heel. But, you know, I, I think you've got personas like Ross Chastain is a watermelon farm. And I think leaning into that persona certainly gets a, a, a group of fans, including some that we see in the show that, you know, will get behind their driver in a big way, not only because of what they see on the track, but who that persona is maybe off the track as well.
0: Yeah. The emotion that it evokes in them. Right. Right. One of the most controversial issues of the season and very surprising to me is that Denny drives for Joe Gibbs Racing and has for two decades. But now he co-owns his own racing team, along with Michael Jordan, and he's competing against the drivers in whom he has a financial stake, Bubba Wallace and Tyler Reddick. To me, this is like Patrick Mahomes being the owner of the Baltimore Ravens while still playing for the Chiefs. Aaron, I would love your take on this because I've never seen anything like this in a professional sport, like that it's allowed, that it's just happening. Like, what is your take on this? Well,
1: my take is, like, we made it the plot line of the first show, right? So obviously we totally agree with you. We found it, like, super interesting. We couldn't find a comparison to it. You just made, like, a really interesting one Uh, when when I asked questions about it. My sense was that it was less Patrick Mahomes owning the Ravens but more like owning like a you know if it was a baseball team like owning a Triple A team because 2311 is not one of the huge teams like Joe Gibbs Racing or Hendrick Motorsports or Penske but as the show evolves you see how much progress 2311 has done where all three of those drivers if you include Denny I guess you shouldn't include him but Bubba and Tyler both make the playoffs Tyler makes it all the way to the final 8 so in that case it is Look, it's one of those sports where, you know, and you see this in the Olympics sometimes where they might call them teams, but ultimately it's an individual sport. So you're competing against everyone and you're kind of happy if your teammates did well. It's like a brother or sister doing well. But yeah, look, we, we found it like a fascinating dynamic, you know, and it, and it sort of plays itself out right there in that race in Daytona in episode one.
0: Yes. Aaron says Tim, it ends up not being a hypothetical. You know, that final cut Ty Gibbs and Bubba Wallace end up becoming things that Denny does have a stake in. And he says, you know, when asked
1: by the letter of the law, I should be pushing Ty. I'm financially invested in the 23. I think that they know where my allegiance would lie on this one.
0: People seem really surprised that he said that out loud. Tim, were you surprised that he said that out loud?
2: I was. And I think it led to a great line in the show where Dale Earnhardt Jr. says, yeah, I, I would have probably made the decision. I just never would have admitted it out, out loud as Denny did, which which is, I, I think, how probably most of us felt. It's interesting. And, and I think the other piece of this is it, it's really illustrative of, of how this process came together in, in such a, a unique way. I think going back to the conversations with Aaron and, and Connor and team, I I think it's really what put this show on the rails to to becoming as good as it turned out because there's a lot of things that I think we see through the NASCAR lens of we're kind of used to it, right? That Denny driving for for one team and owning another team, that's been in place for the last couple of years. So so I think going back to our first conversations as we laid out, here are the potential storylines, here are the driver characters and personalities. I, I think it probably led to a, a lot of conversations that we wouldn't have had if this were just a a NASCAR production, right? It, it forced some conversations. And look, if if this show is going to reach new fans, we needed that. We needed to be able to tell the story through the lens of, of not just what you see from NASCAR on a, on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, Tim, I'm telling you, it's wild. It's, it's a wild situation, and I'm glad you included it. Another thing that is wild is William Byron, who did not hone his skills on muddy stock car tracks like all the other kids did. He learned to drive through iRacing, a high-end driving simulating video game. He got to be great before he ever drove a real car, which is incredible. Think about a golfer learning to golf on a golf simulator without ever walking a course. It just would not happen. Can you talk about the implications of his trajectory on NASCAR? What do you think, Tim?
2: It's fascinating, and, and it's another one of those those stories that I think we have been aware of internally for, for some time. But no matter how many times I hear it, it never seems any less incredible. And, and I think the timing of it, look, I mean, one of the biggest movies of the past year was Gran Turismo, and, and that is very similar to what we're seeing with, with someone like William Byron.
1: I would come home from school, and I would get straight on iRacing, and I'd run till 10 o'clock at night. My parents, like, first, they're like, this is a huge distraction. Like, you need to get off the computer.
2: If he ain't got his homework done, then he could, I race. And we were like, if you don't keep your grades up, then you can't race. I, I think there is a a path to NASCAR racing, certainly at the Cup Series level, that has existed for decades. And and more often than not, it starts with a go-kart. And, you know, I think you see that with Denny, you see that with Joe Magano and others. But to have William Byron tell his story that before he ever got You know set foot in a car he was racing on a computer on a simulator and i I think his comparison to a flight simulator is exactly spot on it's just it's a little bit unusual to see a guy competing for a championship in a sport at the highest level when his entry into that sport was a computer
0: So, Tim, I'm not saying something that I'm sure you haven't heard before, probably thousands of times, but there are those who say that, well, it takes a lot of skill and endurance, uh, that race car drivers are, quote, not true, quote, athletes. What did you try to include in this series that refutes that argument?
2: Yeah, um, Aaron may have uh, something to say about that, because uh, when we were in production, we we went through uh, some of the the training that the drivers do on a day to day basis. And I would say that we found it much more challenging than maybe we would have previously imagined. But I think, you know, the ability to sit in a race car that is reaching absurd temperatures, which, you know, William Byron experienced in, in Martinsville, among others, and then the, the mental fortitude to keep focus for three or four hours in a race car. I think anyone that could see this show and see the, the preparation both mentally and physically Going into to what these guys have to deal with, I think it will very much change any perceptions uh, that that these drivers are not athletes. It's pretty incredible to see up close. And I think, again, back to the the midweek lives of these drivers, that's part of it. Certainly there's that kind of normal day to day dad or husband uh, roles and responsibilities. But there's also the things that they have to do during the middle of the week, and, and they're all very different from one another. How they're preparing their bodies physically and and how they're preparing mentally for those racetracks. It's really interesting, and I think it's going to be fascinating for people to see that up close in person.
0: Yeah, Aaron, it does seem like there's this new emphasis on physical fitness, but we see there seems to be not really a... An agreement on a uniform training regimen. Some guys are doing reps on the Nautilus. Other guys are swimming. We see some high tech involved in some of the training. Did you get the sense that everyone's just trying to figure out what works for them individually?
1: I, I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, in terms of your like of the athlete question, to me, if it gets your heart rate up and gets your adrenaline pumping, I think that's a pretty good case for. It's certainly a certain kind of competition. And I think auto racing is much closer, you know, in all this, especially when you think of, like, what they're going through physically in terms of the heat, and Tim talks about that. And, yeah, there are a few of these drivers. You know, Ross Chastain is one in particular. We went to the – this is what Tim was alluding to, uh, totally busting me – but we went to the training facility, which you see in the show, where he kind of does these sort of next-generation-type workouts. And what it is – you see him doing this, but basically, if if everyone can picture – a big kind of computer screen or almost like a a big television screen. And these dots are coming on the screen. They're coming on and off. And basically to test your reflexes, as soon as a dot comes, you have to like touch the dot. Um, I think it's actually a little more complicated. You have to touch a certain color dot or whatever. And I think in a course of a minute at like the remedial level, I was in like the, I I did not do well. I don't remember if I was in like the first percentile or just (laughs) the raw number I got was, uh, let's just say not something to crow about on a podcast. (laughs) Um, The interesting thing also is I think Ross is an actually example of, so he's doing all this next gen stuff and he's someone who also embraces, he's the one swimming, he's the one running. Right. So I think the guys who are doing that are also doing more of the physical work. And then you got guys, I mean, you know, like, I think it's pretty clear in the show, like Denny Hamlin like he just, he's like, I know how to drive a car. I, I've been doing this for a long time. I know what works for me. I need to relax during the week. If I do all this stuff, it's not going to make me better. And look, Denny Hamlin's, you know, won more than 50 races. His his record speaks for itself. Um, So I think on a certain level, you do have to do, I guess, you know, from from the little I've learned, I think you do have to do what what you think works for you.
0: Well, from the little you've learned, Aaron, um, one thing that no one can question is the athleticism of the pit crews, right? So the pit crews, each pit stop is this high stakes mechanical ballet. Can you tell me what you learned about what it takes to be part of an elite pit crew?
1: Yeah. I mean, these guys are like a lot of them are like former college football players um, and certainly like elite athletes. It's just insane how much they can get done in nine seconds, you know, and 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 what you realize if you think of how fast these cars are going and the margin of victory, you know, or the margin between first place and 10th place every second, every fraction of a second counts, you know, to me. And we talked about this at the top a little bit in terms of what we wanted to showcase about NASCAR. How awesome is it just to look at, you know, and, and I'm sure everybody is just struck by just the panorama of a NASCAR race. And then when you get really tight and we were able to get our cameras like positioned in really, you know, really great places for these pit crews, like it's just awesome to cover. You want to talk about like just an awesome movie scene. Um, that to me was my favorite part of like the shows when we would get in and obviously you're getting the audio and you have a few of these guys wearing microphones. That to me was some of the, the most fun stuff that we were able to, to cover in the show.
0: So regular TV coverage seems to have about maxed out all the different ways to film inside and outside of the car. Netflix sports series are known for their innovative ways showing a sport that we are really familiar with. Aaron, what did you want to show us from race day that we had never seen before?
1: Well, it was an interesting challenge, Rebecca, because if you actually watch one of these races on on the television broadcast, like there actually is a heck of a lot of, you know, really interesting stuff you're seeing in terms of in-car bumper cameras and all the audio that's going forth, but it's going by live and you can only get so much of it. So if, you know, that's the first draft of history, I think we were able to say, okay, this is really entertaining on television, but you know, it'd be great if we could make a movie about it and really pick, you know, the right strand of audio at the right time in terms of where the story is going and craft it that way. So in some ways, our challenge was to use all the different resources that NASCAR Studios, NASCAR Media makes available like through and then you know their partners on television, and kind of just use all of them and 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 almost like recut it all as a movie, and then you're adding into that we had you know isolated cameras on the uh, crew chiefs, right, and then obviously you're seeing stuff of the pit crew, and then the biggest one is we're telling the stories of these drivers. You're getting to know their families. You're getting to know their wives, their girlfriends, their kids. So we could have, if we made our plans right, we would have an extra camera on the family members as the car is going, uh, as the race is going to, you know, again, make that really like a movie about every race and, and certainly the big ones. And I think once we got the hang of it, I was so proud of like our, our editing and producing team led by uh, Jackie Decker and Tim Mullen and just some amazingly talented people who, you know, worked round the clock for weeks and weeks, you know, several months to get this thing in gear and, and again, make, you know, these films about the races and the sport.
0: Yeah, because unlike a football game, you can't just point a camera at the family box, right? People are inside of a trailer like a mile away sometimes or the spotter is like way up on the top of the thingy there. And one of the things that I wanted to know is that, you know, we've all seen dramatic video of these crashes at these NASCAR races, but I don't think we've ever seen the reaction of other teams watching the crashes, especially in real time. What did you think when you first saw those behind the scenes reactions of those crashes?
1: Yeah, I mean, we were blown away. I mean, what's funny also is you're watching these races every week, and you want to talk about uh, having having a vested interest. I mean, we're rooting for Denny. Come on, Denny, you got to keep going. You're our, you know, you're you're our main character, and then these other, you know, and certainly William and and these different. And, okay, what's going to happen here? And the very first race that our crews covered was that race at Daytona with that brutal brutal wreck towards the the very end. Car is up and over. Farrell
0: rolling down the back straightaway. It is Ryan Priest, hand over hand. Oh, no. Oh, my God.
2: okay? Oh, my God. Shit. Who is that? Priest. Damn. What a fucking wreck.
1: Wow. And that was really, I think, the most dramatic thing. I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of, of seeing the just everyone going, oh, my God, because that, to me, conveyed the gravity of it, because if a car just wrecks and they go, oh, no problem, et cetera. But if their jaws are dropping and they're speechless and they're nervous about, I think it was Ryan Priest coming out of his car, is he going to make it out or not? That, to me, showed what a you know massive deal that was.
0: Hmm. So I think that the documentary captures a lot about drivers in these small moments, which we've talked a little bit about. We do see Ross Chastain seeking out the race fan with the watermelon on his car just to say hello. Tim, I'm curious, do drivers typically make time for fans like that at race courses, like in between events? What is it like, that culture?
2: Yeah, listen, I, I admittedly have a bit of a bias, but but I think that from a a, a fan accessibility standpoint, I don't think there's a better sport than NASCAR. I I think not only is it not unusual to see a scene like that with Ross engaging with fans, I think it's fairly common.
0: I mean, he's standing here talking to me, and I'm nobody. He's a superstar. He takes time out of his day to come find us in the first place and then spend the time and talk with me and sit in my car. We spotted you from like quarter mile
1: away because we could see the watermelon. <laughs> There's one thing I could find, that's the watermelon.
2: For people that buy a ticket and attend a NASCAR race, it is uh, fairly common for them to interact with drivers. And I think anytime I've taken anyone to a NASCAR race for the first time, I think one of the things they're most struck by is you, you stand out on the grid before the race starts and you're literally standing two feet away from from these drivers minutes before they climb in for these races. So I think there is a very mutual admiration between our fans and our competitors. And I think they you know, understand that and, and seek it out. It's a, it's very much a community around this sport, which I think is, is one of the things that makes it
1: unique.
0: Hmm. So let's get to the final four. Aaron, you included this amazing piece of tape. And that's when you tell Christopher Bell how low of a priority he was to the series as you were planning it.
1: When I first came onto this
2: project, they were like, all right these are the guys that we expect to
1: you know continue into the round of eight and stuff because you have to make a plan and make choices and stuff
2: I
0: wasn't in that plan, was you, I? You were you were never in that plan. imagine that. You could have just played the soundbite about him being the underdog. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts about why you've included that little behind the scenes moment of that conversation.
1: Well, it's funny. I mean, it goes back to a lot of things, but even in the beginning, we were talking about these shows, right? I think the audience is a little bit, I guess the phrase would be in on the joke. The audience understands what's going on. They understand people are interviewing him. And so that gives you a little bit of a creative liberty to occasionally sneak in the producer's voice. That producer who's, who was interviewing Christopher Bell is a guy named Rob Liano, a good friend of mine. I, I literally had a coffee with him the other day and we were talking about that moment and he kind of brought like a little bit of an edge to it. We were concerned, you know, again, we sort of said the the reason Christopher Bell wasn't a featured character, we weren't sure how much personality he had. And so Rob kind of was going to go in there. And sure (laughs) enough, Christopher Bell, like, again, from like the very we meet him for the first time in show one. And he's like phenomenally compelling because he's like, absolutely. He's like, yeah, you forgot about me, man. And it's so cool that he kind of calls us on it just like that. And it couldn't have worked better. You know, you're always fooling around and figuring out where to put stuff. And once we realized that that would be the way to to start w- that show, it was it was just perfect.
0: So everything comes down to this final race in Arizona. This sequence has the most footage from inside the car. Ryan Blaney flipping off Chastain. Bell hits the wall. Christopher Bell is in the wall. One of our championship contenders. Oh, we're in the wall. Oh, we hit the fucking wall. Yep we're fucked and some pretty intimate moments off the track tim i'm curious what was your favorite piece of footage from that day
2: cool that is that is a tough question i will tell you that aaron and i watched that race together in phoenix and I, I think we were were hanging on on every second of every lap i do think it was you know the moments where ross very true to character is is not ceding any ground to, to you know to the championship uh, competitors i thought was phenomenal
1: Got
2: nothing to lose. Gotta be smart here. just bumped Chastain in the bumper. Gotta be careful, guys, because if that front splitter is starting tearing up that car is gonna quit handling, Chastain is not going to give this lead up easily. I think the stress level in that arena as Ryan Blaney was was getting tied up with Ross. It was very evident in that moment that, you know, this could go sideways really quickly for for Ryan. He's got much more to lose certainly than does Ross. And I think the way back to what we talked about earlier, the the ability of the Aaron and team to capture so much that's going on and and put it on film, I think being able to see that battle playing out in real time and hearing Ryan's car owner Roger Penske tell him to lay off and that, telling him that he's got things to lose and I find that fascinating because the ability for a driver to be competing for a championship while also just competing with the one uh, the one car in front of him. I, I mean, that's a tough battle, certainly mentally. But to take someone who's had the, the success in business and, 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 and motorsports, obviously, like Roger Penske, to be the voice of
0: reason, I thought was a fantastic part of the show. What about you, Aaron? What was your favorite piece of footage from that day?
1: Well, I mean, so many different things. I mean, what I will say is this: I'll, I'll, I'll just avoid the question because there was so much. But I will say that you know, you talk about we're trying to make this, set, trying to make a movie out of this, right? And we're sitting up. I'm with Tim and with Connor Schell, who you know runs Words and Pictures, our production company, and a few other people. And this thing is playing out, and it's like, could we have scripted it better? Because We've got our four drivers, all of whom are kind of in in some way taking turns in the spotlight. And unfortunately for Christopher Bell, his day ended early, but that kind of gave us like a middle point to kind of, you know, spear off in the race. And that was a good storyline. But you've got Ross Chastain, who is kind of this one and done character for us, right? We introduced him in episode three, I guess. And, you know, he's really interesting. He's compelling as anyone, but he unfortunately didn't have a great playoff. So he's kind of gone, but he was and then all of a sudden episode five, boom, here he is again. And. Totally true to form saying, hey, you know, screw you guys. Like, I don't care if you're going for the championship. I'm going to win this year end race. And it was like so true to form. And then obviously Ryan, you know, coming on at the end and winning. I always like I'll tell you this. I always liked how much access we got after the races, you know, because you've got Gianna, who's Ryan's girlfriend, mic'd up. And in this case, you know, William and, and Ryan's sister, Erin, and all these characters and just getting all that audio and being there for the celebration, like so intimate, like that's not something that you're going to get on the television broadcast at the time, really. And I think something else we're bringing to it. So as cool as the race was, as soon as it was over, you know, I think we had four, to, I think we had six cameras and, and to be able to cover all that aftermath, you know, was a really, I think, satisfying way to, you know, end the series.
0: So we know some of the drivers have beef on and off the track, but I'm struck by so many of them having such young families. There's even a Halloween party for all the kids at one of the races. Tim, when you've had someone in the sport like Richard Petty, who raced for decades, this is an incredibly youthful field of drivers. Are these the names that we are going to be following for the next 20 years?
2: I think so. And I think it was one of the reasons that telling this story through this show right now was so important, because it is a bit of a changing of the guard in the sport, right? I, I think the average age of our championship four for the last two years has been the lowest average in in the sport's history. So I think you are seeing it play out and guys like Ryan Blaney, you know, he's going to be around this sport and be a star for a long time. And I think seeing his first championship was important. I think, you know, Christopher Bell has been in the championship for the, the past two years. William Byron. I mean, they're, they're very much this new crop of stars that really didn't take a whole lot of time to develop. They they had some success from from the first time they hit the Cup Series. And I think you'll hear that from some of our veteran drivers that, you know, it used to be you kind of had to wait your turn and, and you had to wait for that old guard to to move on from the sport. This young crop of drivers has no interest in waiting. They are are ready to take the reins now, and and I think you're you're seeing that.
0: Well, the series is NASCAR, full speed. Tim Clark, Aaron Cohen, I got to say, pulled me right into its draft. I'm a fan now. Thanks a lot for making it, and thanks so much for talking to me about it. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. A lot of fun.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Aaron Cohen and Tim Clark. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On!, each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Thanks so much for listening.